Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, If you're new, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to open the scriptures with you. Parents, if you'd like your kids who are fifth grade and below to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now called Gospel Project, you can just walk them out towards the back, and there will be some volunteers there able to help. Everybody else, while they're getting the kids taken care of, turn with me to Mark 12, if you would. Mark chapter 12, and if you need a Bible, then underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a blue one, and you can turn to page 495 in those Bibles. Page 495, we'll be continuing our study in Mark. We are committed here as a church family to a particular kind of preaching. It's it's called expositional preaching, and what that means is that uh, we are, those of us who preach, are, are not free to just talk about anything we want to talk about, that we open a passage of Scripture, and whatever that paragraph, in this case, is about, our job is to explain what that paragraph means. We're expositing the text and exposing it before you. We're not only committed to expositional preaching, we're committed to something called consecutive exposition, which just means we started with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll work our way all the way through the book. And then we'll pick another one and do the same thing again. And that's uh, the main diet that we have as a congregation into the Scriptures. The great benefit to that is uh, that we are less likely to get sort of the, the pet theological issues of the preacher and much more likely to get what the text itself says. And we need that because we need to hear from God on all kinds of issues. Today we come to a passage that, uh, frankly, if uh, we were a topical preaching church, I would not pick this passage because it will ruffle your feathers, at least a lot of you. Um, After the first service today, Uh, I had more people wanting to talk about that sermon than literally any sermon I've ever preached in this church. So, um, and not all were real happy. One guy was straight up yelling. So, see what you got. (laughs) All right? Um, We are about to enter everyone's favorite season of American life. Election season. What? PSL? What does that mean? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you, Gracie. There was no laughing in the first gathering, so that was a nice reprieve. Uh, With midterm elections coming this fall, we have political ads, phone calls, and profundity filling the air. And the future of the entire cosmos hangs in the balance. (laughs) Or so they'd have us believe. What's Jesus' take on politics? What does God want us to think about government? How would the Lord have us behave in relationship to government? Well, believe it or not, The Bible tells us very, very plainly. This ought to be one of those things that no Christian disagrees about. 
Today we come to what is widely regarded as the most important political statement in the Bible, and it is perhaps the most insightful and comprehensive single sentence that has ever been uttered on God and government. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, before we look at the trap itself, let's make sure we're on the same page in terms of the, the moment, the occasion that is presented to us here. The top level of leadership in, uh, in the nation of Israel at the time was the Jewish governmental leaders who were called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 leaders made up of um, a, a numerous group of political parties. And among those parties were included the Pharisees and the Herodians. We see them mentioned here in verse 13. These two groups of leaders were on completely opposite ends of the political spectrum. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day, and the Herodians were the liberals. The Pharisees wanted to get rid of Rome, and the Herodians had sold themselves out to Rome. But these two groups, while deeply divided on ideological issues, were united in their opposition to Jesus. Have you noticed how the same thing happens today? There can be groups that are very much opposed to each other, but they're willing to work together to oppose Christianity. That looked like I was about to throw up, but it wasn't throw up. I was merely trying to hide my cough, but I almost puked in the process. The Sanhedrin apparently sent a formal delegation in order to try to trap Jesus. And when the first one didn't work, they sent another. And when that one didn't work, they sent another. That's the next three sermons. The next couple of Sundays, we'll look at each group as they sought to trip up Jesus. Their aim is very clear. Their aim right there, you can see it, was to trap him in his talk. Now, what was that trap? Well, look with me, if you would, at verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, before we get to their question itself, this delegation came to Jesus and sought to butter him up both sides. Four insincere compliments are given in total, one right after the other. And of course, what they said is true, and yet it revealed their hypocrisy because they did not actually believe what they said. The book of Proverbs speaks to this practice of flattery. Here is one case in Proverbs chapter 29, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. This important proverb teaches us that The one who seeks to trick other people 
by virtue of insincere kindness will end up getting trapped in their own trap. There's a strong note of irony here because the Pharisees and the Herodians are not going to be successful with the trap they set, but they themselves will get caught in it. Now, consider with me, if you would, please, their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then to make it really clear they're asking a simple yes or no question, they repeated themselves. Should we pay them or should we not? Now, frankly, it's difficult to describe how sneaky this question was, but let me give it my best attempt. As you probably know, this entire region and most of the known world at this point in history was dominated by Rome. While there were some benefits to being under Roman rule, the Romans in general were ruthless, particularly with their taxation. And not only were the Israelites forced to tolerate their captors, they had to fund their lavish lifestyles, their construction projects, and their constant expansion around the world by standing on the backs of people forced to pay taxes. The taxation was oppressive from a financial standpoint, but what really bothered the Jews was the constant reminder that they were a conquered people and that every time they paid their taxes, they were paying tribute to Caesar. Now, none of us, unless there's one here, and I've never met one, none of us enjoy paying our taxes. April 15th is not our favorite day of the year. But there's none of this backstory when it comes to our own tax system in this country. In asking Jesus if it's lawful to pay taxes or not, and in framing the question as an either-or, a yes or no, they've put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Because if Jesus says, no, faithful Jews must not pay their taxes, then what would they do? Well, they'd immediately go to the Roman authorities and say, this guy is aiming to lead an insurrection against your government, and he's starting by teaching, don't pay your taxes. Jesus would then be arrested. But on the other hand, if he says, yes, faithful Jews should pay their taxes, then the crowds who love Jesus, the crowds who saw him as their king, might very well walk away from him because they hated taxation. It seemed that there was no good way to avoid their trap. This was the brilliant question that finally appears to have forced Jesus in a corner in which there is no way out. He is on the ropes, getting pummeled, and the knockout bell is about to ring. At least that's what they thought. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. This was the coin used to pay a particular tax. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. 
And they said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, it may not seem like it to you, but this is a magnificent response by Jesus. And while I wasn't excited for this sermon, I am excited to share with you what that sentence means. Jesus appeared stuck, but with some spiritual jujitsu, he has taught us an extremely important lesson. There's frankly a lot for us to consider here. And the fact that so many people wanted to talk afterwards, which I love, only confirms my sense of the timeliness of what we need to, in fact, hear today. You want to trade? <laughs> Thank you, brother. That was very kind. Today, Christians sometimes fall into one of two extremes when it comes to how we think about politics. On the one hand, sometimes there are people who seem legitimately to think that if we just voted Christians into political power, whole scale, then we would be back to what we were in the beginning, a Christian nation. There are other people who think, my Christianity is my own private, religious, spiritual experience. And what everyone else does with their own morality is completely up to them. My own Christian view should have nothing to do with how I vote. There are those two extremes. Both are equally wrong. However, I doubt most of us in the room this morning fall into those that far on the extreme. But I do think many of us lean toward one way or the other. And my hope is today that as we try to walk through Jesus' statement and its implications, each of us would be set back right in the center. It's not difficult to see why the Jews would be uh, offended by the request for the taxation, because let's consider the coin itself, the denarius. On one side of that denarius would have been uh, the, the outline of the image of the Roman, August, the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar, and then underneath him, you can Google this later and find pictures of it. I couldn't find one that the resolution was high enough that I could show you, but you can see it small on, on your phone. Under Tiberius Caesar, the image was an abbreviation of this phrase. Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. Now, on the opposite side of the coin was a depiction of Tiberius' mother, who was known as the goddess of peace. And under her were the words, high priest, 
Now, set aside the issue of, I don't like using my money to pay for other people's things. Consider to a, a, a serious Jew what using that coin would have felt like to them. There, one of their ten most critical commandments was, don't make an image of God. And don't bow down to idols. And there they're using a coin in which someone is claiming to be God. And they have to use that coin to pay that tax. And then there's the claim of a prophetess, I mean, a, a, a priestess being high priest on the back of that coin. This would have been extremely offensive. Being told to pay the tax by Jesus would have caused some people to feel absolutely dumbfounded. And yet Jesus calls for the coin. Now notice he doesn't have one. This is the funny part of the passage. He, he has people accusing him, and yet they're the ones carrying around the coin. Jesus asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? To which the Pharisees and Herodians rightly reply, Caesar's. Now look again at Jesus' response. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. With a single sentence, Jesus both avoided their trap and informed every person who would ever live of the right ordering of the relationship between God and government. I find it impossible to overstate the significance of verse 17. Today, you will probably hear the word unprecedented used five, six, seven, eight times, and none of them will actually be true, except this one. When Jesus said those words, that was a political view that was unprecedented. Unprecedented. In the ancient world, when you conquered an area, one of the things you would do is you'd go through and you'd wipe out all their currency. And in order to flex your muscles, you would replace that currency with your own newly minted currency. So that every time anybody paid for something, they're being reminded we are a conquered people. We no longer control our economy. We must submit to Tiberius Caesar. It showed everybody, everybody that you were in charge. And the coin then literally belonged to Caesar. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, he's saying, the coin belongs to Caesar. Just give it back to him. It's not that big a deal. He's the coin creator and owner. He bears the image, his image, the coin bears the image of him, and so give it back to him. Apparently, Jesus thought that he, he, was, he or the people using the coins were not morally or ethically responsible for how the government used those coins but they were responsible to pay the required tax. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, render 
to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's telling us that the government has legitimate authority. And yet, that authority is limited. It's limited by the next clause. Render to God the things that are God's. Now, how does this work? Well, renowned theologian Wayne Grudem helps us here. He says this, Jesus shows us that there are to be two different spheres of influence, one for the government and one for the religious life of the people of God. Now, of course, those spheres are overlapping, but they're not identical. God has final authority over all, and yet until the second coming of Christ, He has entrusted some of that authority to the state. Church and state then are not the same. They both have legitimate, true claims to forms of authority. And yet they do overlap. And it's in that overlapping that this gets complicated and we need to really think deeply about what Jesus meant. I think we could summarize this passage with a single sentence. Obey both government and God according to what each is due. Obey both government and God according to what each is due. For the purposes of this passage, then, the most direct application would simply be this. Give the government the taxes you owe. Don't cheat, don't swindle, don't weasel, don't gripe. Just pay what you owe. And give to God what is His. Now, here's the really beautiful part of this passage. The coin goes to Caesar. Why? Because it bears his image. Whose image are you in? You're in the image of God. And so you give God your very self, your whole life. The government gets a little tax. Big deal. God gets all that you are. This teaching from Jesus was truly groundbreaking because the Jews up to this point thought the only sound form of government was a theocracy in which God himself ruled over the people and there was no distinction between the, the commands of God and the laws of the land. And so they were expecting Jesus to reestablish that. And yet Jesus in this sentence blew the lid off their expectations. And he made it unequivocally clear that he did not come into the city of Jerusalem with political aims. If he had, this would be the moment that he would exercise them. This was radical, absolutely radical. Verse 17 has literally changed the world. And I don't think it's any less revolutionary today. We're at a particularly low point in this nation's politics. And we have been for a while. And honestly, it doesn't appear like things are getting any better. The temperature isn't getting turned down. The rhetoric isn't becoming a little more kind. The, the line that's been drawn between parties isn't shrinking. We're becoming more and more and more dysfunctional. 
One factor in this divided age are the words and behaviors of Christians. Many so-called Christians act very unchristianly when it comes to the way they talk about politics. I pray today that would change. Not as a result of a sermon, but as a result of God speaking God's words, using His Spirit, and convicting us whether we fall this way or that way. I think we have much to repent of and learn. In our remaining time together, what I'd love to do is take verse 17 and draw out its implications as are explained in the rest of the Bible. So, six implications of Mark 12, 17 for today. Again, just to re-emphasize the sentence I'm talking about. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Number one, government and civil leaders are established by God. Government and civil leaders are established by God. Friends, whoever wins the midterm elections, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, or wackadoos, whoever wins will win because God willed it. Now, how exactly does our voting, if you're a citizen here in the U.S., how exactly does our voting and God's decreeing intersect? I don't pretend to be able to explain that. But somehow, in our free will decision-making, God will bring about what He wants to such a degree that we can say, whoever wins will win because God willed it. Civil leaders hold their offices by virtue of divine decree. Now, if your blood starts to boil a little bit as I say that, then try being a Jew in the first century. The man on the throne in Rome thinks he's a god. And the one that you see as your king has just said to you, give to that man that thinks he's a god your rightly owed taxes. Using the coin in which he says, I'm the son of a god, which makes him a god himself. Now, if you want a text of Scripture that explicitly teaches what I'm saying, not just one that lays the foundation for it, here's Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except established from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The Apostle Paul's position, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
was that whoever wins the election wins because God willed it. Number two, government is primarily responsible for maintaining order and enforcing justice. Government is primarily responsible for maintaining order and enforcing justice. In a fallen world, brothers and sisters, a bad government is far better than no government. Do you see that? That's because however bad the government is, every government will in some way, shape, or form seek to restrain some forms of evil and reward some forms of good. That's what the government exists for. That is its fundamental job description. And so every form of government is in some way better than no form of government. Do you remember um, back in, uh, I don't remember what year that was. COVID has left like a fog. <laughs> it's just impossible to get time frames right. When, when all that civil unrest was, was going during uh, COVID and after George Floyd had been murdered, and there's that little area in Portland uh, set up, Chaz, I think it was called. Uh, you remember that? The, the goal was uh, no police, no authority, peace, love, and happiness. Do you know what happened in that little area? Do you know why it had to go away? Because people were getting murdered. It didn't work. It will never work. You, we, we are fallen, sinful creatures. And even bad government has a way of restraining the evil that we would explore if we were able without any fear of repercussion. I wonder if some of us look to the government for things that only God can provide, while other people think the government has no role in our lives whatsoever. There, the most frequent command in the Bible is fear not. And yet Romans 13 says, be afraid. Be afraid. If you do evil, fear the government because they wield the sword. Number three, Christians are called to be good citizens of even bad governments. Christians are called to be good citizens of even bad governments. Now think with me about some of the most famous people in the Bible. Joseph. Daniel. Jesus. What did all three share in common? Well, Joseph was under Egyptian rule. The very people who would make his descendants slaves. The very people who locked him up because he wouldn't have sex with someone's wife. Daniel. Daniel ruled over vast authority in a government 
that took him from his home as a teenager. And likely, he lived the rest of his life in Babylon. Jesus. Jesus is the only Son of God. And he's saying, use that coin in which that person, a mere human being, is saying they are the Son of God. Every one of those civil governments were far, 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 far. Turn to your neighbor and say far, far, far worse than anything the American government has done. And yet those three men submitted in appropriate ways to the government. They were good citizens, if you will, under bad government. Church, our ultimate authority and our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. So the passport we carry, the most important one, is a passport that we belong, that we're citizens of heaven. And the most important group of people that exist on the earth is not the government, it's the church. We are an embassy of heaven. And yet we are also citizens of the particular nation we were born into. We follow Jesus as our head. And in following Jesus as our head, we listen to people like Peter. First Peter chapter 2 says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And three of the most shocking words in the Bible honor the emperor. Honor the one whose image is on that coin. I, I, if that doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, something's wrong. Honor the emperor. Number four, you're doing great. You're half done. Deep breath. We're going to make it. Number four, the government has real but limited authority. The government has real, but limited authority. Brothers and sisters, we ought to obey the government in every way we possibly can. And we ought to worship God. Obedience and worship. Yes, in some very, very extreme and unusual circumstances, we are called to disobey government in order to obey God. But those are exceedingly rare. Even in the Bible, those are exceedingly rare. Yes, we obey the government, but our ultimate allegiance is to God. That's because the power of the state is legitimate, but it's limited. It only has a delegated and temporary authority. But God's authority is ultimate and eternal. We have real obligations to the government. 
hear what they are in the rest of that passage we've been reading in Romans 13. Here's verses 5 to 7. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God according to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I think what we see in these three texts we're looking at is that Jesus laid the foundation. And then Paul built on it and Peter built on it. But it all can be summarized in render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Number five, there is to be a measure of separation between church and state. There is to be a measure of separation between church and state. Now, this is probably the most complicated of the six ideas I want to present to you. Notice I say a measure of. That's because it is impossible to completely separate church and state. You can't do that. The only way to do that would be for us to never leave this room. And I like you, but that doesn't sound fun. (laughs) Church and state are separate spheres, but they overlap. Separate spheres, but they overlap. So let me go back to those two extremes I talked about earlier. Friends, the United States of America is not a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. But while that extreme is wrong, the other, and because we're a a congregation that leans younger, probably more of us are tempted by this other extreme, also wrong view. And let me describe it to you this way. My personal religious convictions are for here. And when I go out that door, I close them up. And when I go to the ballot box and vote, I don't take them with me. They don't influence my voting. When I watch the news, I watch the news functionally as an atheist. When I talk to my coworkers, I talk to them functionally when it comes to politics as an atheist. Because it's often said this way, you can't legislate morality. Now, the very best form of that argument is this. Well, let me do it the other way first. The very worst form of that argument is is just incredibly foolish because it thinks that if we just voted enough Christians in, then they would enact Christian policies. And then everyone would see, well, geez, the Christians were right. Gosh, I should follow that one, that Jesus. And thereby everyone would be saved. Do you not know any history? Europe tried that. And what's to show of it? Europe is a spiritual wasteland. Largely because God and government were so mixed together that there were, there were times 
that your birth certificate was your infant baptism. Literally, the way the state counted you as being alive was by virtue of your baptism. That's how tied church and state were. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Why? Because conversion, becoming a Christian, is a change that God brings in the human heart after which people respond with faith and repentance. God regenerates, people respond with faith and repentance. That's the only way anyone has ever been made right with God. No political ruler can force that upon anyone. Incidentally, neither can a parent, neither can a spouse. It must be something that God does and people respond to Him. And so, yes, you can't legislate morality. That's true in the sense of you can't legislate someone into their conversion. However, friends, it's, it's also incredibly foolish to think that God wants you to hold your convictions only among the assembled congregation of the saints. The, the church is to have an effect on the culture in such a way that by our love for one another and by our speaking the truth, that people are invited into seeing there's a better way to live. And therefore, we should have the effect of having, uh, presenting a conscience before the world. And so when you vote, you ought to vote in accordance with what God says is true and right and good. Not expecting that that would convert anyone, it won't. But that what God says leads to a better, more fruitful, more enjoyable society. It doesn't lead to conversions, but it does lead to a more healthy good. Does that make sense? So there is to be a measure of separation between church and state because you can't convert people by laws, but we shouldn't turn off our view from the Scriptures when we vote. Church and state hold overlapping but distinct spheres. Now, the last one will be the most offensive, and that's why I made it last. The only holy nation is the church. The only holy nation is the church. Now, for time's sake, we won't go read it, but 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, he uses three adjectives to describe the church. He calls the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and if you know it, say it with me, a holy nation. I think this means an application that we ought to be engaged in politics. And some in the room would do well to even hold political office. But while we ought to be engaged in politics, we must never put our hope in it. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. We're not expecting that in this world, no matter who is elected, that the world will look like the church. It can't. It won't. 
While we might think about politics, read about politics, talk about politics, watch politics, we must not be consumed by politics. And while we should be engaged in it, we ought to give ourselves mainly to Christ's bride, the church. This week, one of the books I read, preparing to talk about this, knowing it might be my last sermon, (laughs) I came across a, a book written by a guy named David Van Druren. Here's something he said. The kingdom of heaven is not to be found in socio-political communities of the broader world. Jesus commands only the church, never the state, to practice the ethic of the kingdom. We can't expect the world to behave like the church. We wouldn't behave like the church apart from the Spirit indwelling us and changing us. Amen? I hope this message has helped lift your head up out of the muck of American politics. But even more important than that, I hope it's raised your eyes up to heaven. Because there, as we look what do we see? We see our perfect king ruling and reigning. A king who's good, who's just, who's lovely, who's pure, who nothing is slipping between his fingers because he couldn't juggle the number of things needed to be juggled that day. And if we listen closely, He is still saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Friend, whether you're a Christian or not, there is a most supremely important lesson to take out of this paragraph of the Bible. Think back to that statement Jesus made. He used a coin as an illustration. He said, give this coin back to Caesar. Why? Because it's got his image on it. And then he said, give to God what is God's. Now the implied reason is what? Because you bear his image. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Thank you for coming. The most important thing we could say to you is not, here's who to vote for, but rather, you were made to image God. He has minted you. And you were created, therefore, to give yourself back to Him and to find the supreme delight of your life to be knowing Jesus, honoring Jesus, loving Jesus, and living for Jesus. And yet, you, like everybody else, all of us in this room, live in a state apart from God in which our sin separates us from Him. The very first two people who were ever made, Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 1, were made in the image of God. 
and yet they disobeyed him, which didn't render them no longer humans, but it did mar the image of God in them. If we were somehow later today to take a field trip and all of us would get on a couple of buses and we were to go to each of our houses and to each one of our horrors, we were ushered into the bathroom in each of our homes and we looked at the mirror. For most of us, looking in that mirror would not be a good reflection of you because it's gunky and messed up and it's got stuff splattered all over it, right? The image you would see would be marred but you would still be you. Friend, you are still made in the image of God, even if you're not a Christian. And yet that image is marred. You don't look like that which you were created to look like. Enter Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the first century, became a human being, that he might... Live the life you and I were meant to live and die the death we deserve to die, thereby taking on all our maredness, our sin. He rose again on the third day that all who will turn from sin and trust in him will be remade in a new image. That new image is far better than Adam. It's a new Adam. We're made in the image of Jesus Christ. We're being made like him. The most human human who's ever humaned. Friend, won't you come to Christ? And if you already know him, then won't you let his statement on politics govern your thinking, your feeling, and your speaking. We stand in the name, let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for us, would you take a moment and talk with God about what you've heard? Father, if there's an arena in life in which we need to come under your corrective discipline, this is certainly it. We pray as a result of what we've heard today that some would be saved, that others who are saved would start living like it, and that this coming election season that we're entering would be very, very, very different at least among us, that what we think about would be governed by Jesus' statement. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God. In Jesus' name, amen.